yes. Very, not me. <laughs> then uh, I suppose that. Uh, sorry, I, I suppose that we will, welcome, yeah. we will welcome. We will welcome all the people, and then uh, the the you the habits is to record the presentation to be sure that people who are not able to uh, join us during the presentation uh, could uh, see it, watch it uh, later. And uh, Brian also promised to send us uh, the slideshow. Then uh, video and slideshow will be post on the, posted on the on the website. And Risto will also uh, pre prepare a, a podcast. A podcast is if, if I know well. Thank you, hmm? sir. Then thank you, thank you to all of us to be there. Thank you also yep. for Cassandra. Cassandra is the organized, practical organizer of these meetings. And you know that it's very late for her at the moment. Then it's yes. also something important to respect the timing. And thanks to those who are so early in the morning, then it's important for us to, to have uh, these uh, activities, to keep contact with uh, the ISEP family. I like this uh, term, even if... Uh, uh, some people does, don't, don't agree with it, but I believe it's important uh, because we are interested by the, the same topics and we would like to uh, go in the same direction. Then uh, Fiona, uh, the floor is yours, yeah. maybe to introduce Brian and the topic of sure. today. And after sure. that, you'll be in charge to uh, lead the discussion uh, and uh, okay, I'm sure that everyone will will be very interested by your uh, content, uh, Brian. So um, I'm I'm really delighted to welcome Professor Brian Culp um, today to this session. And um, Brian is doing really really important work in our field. Today he's going to talk to us about Black humanity in a crisis of movement. I believe it is absolutely important for ISEP and our community to engage with this topic. Um, Brian is um, an expert in the area and I really can't wait to hear what you have to say, Brian, and more importantly, how we're going to engage with what you say. Okay, so it's an important moment for our organization uh, worldwide. Um, and yeah, I really look forward to this. So I'm going to hand straight across to you, Brian, if that's okay, um, to give you as much time as possible. Thanks a million. Very good. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen so we can go ahead and get started and stay on time. And at this point, uh, everyone should be able to see the presentation. Um, as Professor Chambers has mentioned, I am Brian Culp. I'm currently the interim chair and professor in the Wellstar College at Kennesaw State University, which for some of you who've been in the United States, it's about 30 minutes north of Atlanta, Georgia. Um, today, I'm gonna to talk a little bit about obviously black humanity. I was told to talk about this a bit as it relates to the sport pedagogy context, but some of you who know me well will recognize the fact that you will see some things embedded related to public health, uh, physical activities and cultural studies as well. So without further ado, So I always put disclaimers up um, for presentations, depending on what they are. And this one I thought would be very important, um, particularly given the topic. So this particular presentation and interpretations that follow are not intended to paint black people as a monolithic group. Um, it's recognized that perspectives of the black experience across the globe are influenced by a host of social, political, environmental factors further is understanding that this presentation is not a substitute for intentional and sustained efforts to combat inequity, racism, other isms, and other anti-Black practices. So some may ask like, why do I put a disclaimer? Um, the tendency is when we talk about issues related to Black people is what can happen if one is not careful is that one person ends up being the stereotypical representation of a whole group because people over a period of time tend to be comfortable with um, that one person. Um, the other reason why I put the disclaimer up is because quite frankly, some people show up for presentations 
Um, I'm seeing a lot of that in the past few years, but they don't actually want to do the work to de um, deconstruct some of the things that we have in place. So our brief overview today is going to involve the following. Um, I'm going to give a brief perspective related to dehumanization and talk about the importance of that as a foundational concept of the discussion today. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about 1996. I know um, in our pre-discussions, we had a few people talking about their age, and I'm going to go briefly back in time to 1996 and kind of give you a view of spatiality. And then what I'm going to do is present at three recent articles that I think um, really fit to this discussion of Black humanity. And as a result of that, I'm going to talk about some things related to Afrofuturism, which may be an area that we can look at in order to help um, not just diagnose um, the issue of not, um, the, in order to diagnose this issue of Black inhumanity, and also think about some ways that we in physical education, sport pedagogy, sport, and our organizations can help. Um, dissolve this particular problem. So one of the things that we have to understand in order to look at um, Black humanity, you have to first understand how humans can lose humanity. Now, just recently, and it wasn't planned this way, by the way, um, I wrote an article relative to dehumanization and sort of talked about it in broad groups about how specifically people can be excluded from a community based on the majority group's interpretation of the minority group. So Kleiman in 1973 talked about dehumanization and noted that it's a violation of identity and community. Um, for people, the loss of identity is a significant occurrence for victims of dehumanization because agencies lost, and also a dehumanized individual is excluded from community and the promise of what that community has to offer. So when we think about black people and we think about some of the stories and legislations and, and things that we have witnessed across the globe, we see that black people have been losing humanity for long periods of time. Um, depending on what society that you're in, depending on what country you're in, some of these are things that have gone on for hundreds of years, um, some of it in terms of decades. If you're a minority group member going into a majority group that has not had a lot of Black people in the community, it may not necessarily be recognizable at first, but we generally find that a few different things happen when we talk about dehumanization as it relates to Black populations. First of all, obviously, the creation or construction of a hierarchy that seeks to exclude them from the idea of community. Um, we also see, if you um, think about this particular picture of Muhammad Ali from 1968, and just this idea that Black people in a lot of communities are hunted. Um, if you take a look back at the previous slide, when we're looking at this particular picture as specific to black women, um, there are a lot of situations where black women in particular feel as if the white gaze that George Yancey talks about in his book, Black Bodies, White Gazes, black women are subjected to this in terms of hair, in terms of how their body is perceived to be, in terms of things as such as their attitude. So those types of things are typically discussions of what we see when we talk about dehumanization. And essentially at the end, it comes down to the fact that black people are not control of their, their narratives. And in fact, in many cases, it's a situation where there's no middle ground for black people to live. They're either presented as an extreme or they're presented as nothing. And on either sides of those spectrums, we see dehumanizing activities take place. So as promised, I said I'm going to talk briefly about 1996 and sort of how I got into this and this idea of spatiality. So many of you may know that the Olympics came to Atlanta, Georgia in 1996. It was the 100 Olympiad. 
and what happened in Atlanta during that time, um, just to kind of give you an idea about age, I was 19 years old in 1996. In 1996, I was a sophomore at University of Georgia. I'm from outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm working and going to school at the same time and seeing Atlanta change from a city that really had, for lack of a better word, one road to 1990, we ended up getting the Olympics and then everything changed immediately. So some of the neighborhoods that I grew up in where we didn't have a whole lot of resources to begin with, but we had playing fields and we had uh, um, places to play buildings, you start seeing those things change. And you know, when you're in high school, you're recognizing the fact that these changes that are taking place are not necessarily great for everybody. In my community, that was primarily black, um, we saw a lot of resources being taken away. Um, we would see parts of Atlanta being gentrified, which is a, a term that many people are familiar with. And we're looking at this infusion of internationalization and at the same time recognizing that some of the structures that were still in place, such as, as we see it on this particular slide here, this is a picture of Confederate um, soldiers, Confederate generals at Stone Mountain, Georgia, which was um, one of the birthplaces of the Ku Klux Klan. And then there's another history behind that. But, you know, you're walking around and you're seeing structures being created that promote peace and reconciliation. At the same time, there's no discussion of taking away these old structures. So this idea is something that when we talk about space is related to black groups, it's something that has always been in negotiation. We feel like we belong in the space, but at the same time, the structures that um, sort of restrict us are still in place while we have capitalism that is running rapid in a lot of cities. So as promised, and I'm gonna uh, move through this slide and the next one pretty quickly because these are just formational slides. Um, so 2005, I finished at the University of Georgia, my doctorate. We started putting up multicultural practicums. And one of my first studies was looking at that particular practicum and just looking at what multiculturalism is. Um, as we know, multiculturalism can be a loaded term. In fact, a lot of people want to get away from multiculturalism because it doesn't necessarily talk about structural inequalities. Um, the second study that I did that I thought that was um, appropriate for this discussion today was looking at the archetypes and philosophical motivations of urban elementary physical education teachers. And that in that particular study, that was going back into Atlanta where I did my dissertation work and really looking at um, how the city had changed and how new teachers into black schools were perceiving their communication with students, um, black students in that particular thing as well. So. This leads us to the main um, course in terms of my discussions, in terms of my recent studies. So illegitimate bodies, third space investigations and transformation is really when I started thinking about this idea of, of spatiality in a more significant way. Um, just in terms of a timeline in 2011, I started doing a lot more work overseas in particularly study abroad programs and particularly in East Africa. And what I started seeing is these communities that were starting to be set up um, the same way in terms of when new people come into the communities, the existing people that have been in that community for years started getting displaced. And what I also started seeing, even in countries like Africa, was that they would take students with a disability, for instance, and move them to a separate part of town or in a separate village. And I really started thinking about that when I saw it in Africa, um, to sort of understand from my vantage point, growing up in Atlanta as a black man, everyone tells you that at some point you need to go to Africa. So that's part of the narrative that was sort of put in my head for years growing up. I had an opportunity to do it. And then I went over there and I started, started seeing some of the same structures that were in place in the Western world. And it really started making me think about this idea of, of what we consider bodies and how do those things work in spaces that are multicultural. 
So illegitimate bodies and legitimate times was in 2017. And in 2016, as most, most of us know, 2016 was when Trump took office, um, Donald Trump, the former president of the United States. And that really got me thinking about this idea of illegitimacy and who do we consider illegitimate in societies. Um, generally, when you go back and if you skim over that paper, you'll see that I sort of set it in the discussion of Greek and Roman ideals about what they thought was beautiful as terms of a citizen and a person and how they excluded people. So situated in that, what I started talking about was immigration, multiculturalism, and post-racial America in terms of in the United States, who do we consider as a citizen and what impact might that have for physical education? Um, so one of the biggest things that I think I talked about in that particular lecture was theoretical framework of the capability approach by Nussbaum in terms of how she looked at uh, things from the World Health Organization and the types of ideas about life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness and how those things were not taking place in the United States. Um, another part of that particular article I did a lot of work on was talking about this idea of eugenics. And anywhere that I've followed physical education in the world, the big ugly secret we don't talk about is the fact that physical education is rooted in whiteness and physical education is rooted in a heavy history of eugenics. And this is a history that we do not have in physical education curriculum. In fact, it is not discussed at all. And um, there are a lot of different reasons for that. Um, you know, first of all, personally, I think it's obviously intentional, but I think people really have bought into this narrative that sport and physical education is sort of divorced from those different types of aspects. The next study is the one that we'll come back to in a few minutes was third place investigations. And um, I started looking at this last year in particular looking over this idea of people and geography and destiny. And two of the things that I talk about in particular, and you go back it, to look at it, it was cityhood movements, which is cities within cities, so to speak, that are creating the, and separating themselves based on racial lines. And they say it's taxes, but typically what happens is these particular groups will take the best parts of the neighborhood and pretty much break themselves away from the rest of the city while everyone else pays taxpayer money for services that they can't use. So this idea and I, of production of space and what I started um, discussing here were a few different ways that we could look at third space, which I'll get back to in a little bit there, obviously that charts for that discussion. Now, um, one of my colleagues, um, Dr. Tara Blackshear, I believe is on this call. And um, it's funny because at the same time that I was finishing this work up last year, um, I was contacted by Dr. Blackshear and she had asked the question of, hey, do you wanna work on something related to standards? And I thought it was the next logical thing to talk about because standards for physical education, particularly in the United States, drive how we look at people in the United States indirectly. And, and in some ways from a hidden curriculum perspective. And I, I do hope that at some point you get Dr. Blackshear on here. That's why I'm gonna leave some room and I'm not gonna talk about all these things in detail because she's doing some great work along with Dr. Clark Langston Clark, who, who I think everyone is familiar with as well in this particular group. But I think the biggest piece that to focus on as we move to the, how to discuss black humanity here in the next few slides is questioning this notion of physical literacy as related to black youth. So, and really understanding the fact that things like physical literacy and meaningful PE are not bad things, but looking at them in terms of have we looked, have we presented a lens that actually includes everybody in that discussion. Because if we're not, then we may be um, presenting and promoting um, ideals that we don't necessarily want. So for our discussion on humanity, the first thing to recognize is obviously black people are human beings. And unfortunately, um, 
in the past few years in particular, we've seen several incidents across the world that have um, basically looked at black people as if they're second class citizens and even in some cases, uh, third class citizens, if there's a such thing, whether it is people bird watching at the park, which is an example that I have here on this particular slide, which is the United Kingdom um, thinking about Black Lives Matter in a really intentional way, then they may not have been doing it before. And we're seeing a lot of Black people around the world really having important conversations about identity that they were not having before um, because they have been suppressed. So when we think about this concept of Black humanity, what it means to be Black and human is unresolved for non-Black people. And that's a very important thing to understand. Black people know what humanity is. In fact, depending on who you read, you could probably argue the fact that Black people have been the most humane to other groups in society. Um, but for non-Black people, they don't necessarily understand the concept of Black humanity and how it's gone through a, a few different stages. So first of all, obviously the impact of colonialism across the world has created a lot of situations where Black people are looked at as not equal. Um, dehumanization, as we discussed a little bit earlier, in terms of that process of what happens next after history. Then there's a process that we don't talk about enough, which is called deculturalization, which is essentially taking a group of people and stripping their culture away from them and deciding that I'm going to reprogram them with my, the other majority group's culture. Um, we've seen this in Canada with um, the indigenous populations, obviously there when we talk about residential schools. Um, another piece of it is cultural appropriation and what I put here is monetization. So we have, we're having situations now where majority groups will appropriate black culture, but they don't, they want to make money off that culture. They don't necessarily want to, to have Black people um, be in a situation where they can benefit from their talent that they have brought to the table. And then one of the last pieces when we think about Black humanity is this expectation that Black people are supposed to conform to these standards and not ask any questions about these things whatsoever. So indeed, black matters are spatial matters. Um, again, when we talk about spatiality and spatial justice, these, this is not necessarily a new concept. It's a new concept when we're looking at it in terms of physicality and physical education and kinesiology. But look at these particular types of examples. And again, these are, are comments that you may see when you're looking at local news. So for instance, when we think about recreation, why doesn't anyone make room for me on the bike path? And that pretty much speaks to the fact that there's a lot of research that, that suggests that when you're interviewing Black people in recreational spaces, they feel as if white people control all the spaces. So it could be situations from moving bike lanes to being on one piece of the sidewalk and um, white people are walking toward Black people and white people feel compelled not to move in order to make room for Black people to pass on that same side of the street. It could be situations um, such as most of us are reading about recently, which is um, people getting fair value for their houses. There's one current story that has been going around, and this is not uncommon, by the way, in the United States, where a Black couple will um, try to sell their house for a certain amount of money, uh, market value, and they get lowballed and they get a horrible offer for that. And then what they usually do is tell one of their white friends to stand in for them and they end up getting an offer that is over market value, okay? The idea of why are people looking at me? We generally see that as a theme as well is when black people go into spaces and I'll discourse on this in a couple minutes a little bit further. And one big thing I think a lot of people are not aware of particularly to the United States is um, some of us are familiar with um, tracing protocols such as Ancestry.com and tracing genealogy. And the fact that there are a lot of black people in North America who cannot trace back over from the United States because of the fact that they were brought over on the transatlantic slave trade. 
So um, for instance, you could be in a situation where you talk to white friends, which I have, and they can trace themselves all the way back to England, their street, their crest. And when I have tried to do that, I can only trace myself back to South Carolina, right? So that is something when we talk about spatial matters, those are things that are smaller things that we don't think about, but they do make a difference. So third spaces. And people may ask themselves, well, what relevance does this have for physical activity and physical education? Um, interestingly enough, um, there's been some recent work on this in the past year. Um, Jahan Lee and Laura Arizito, who all of us, um, I think all of us know some of the work that comes out of Columbia University, um, recently wrote an article about physical culture, immigrant girls, and Instagram as a space of marginalization and resistance. And some of the questions when I'm posing, looking at third spaces that I pose in the article and some things for us to think about is, first of all, what is this transition from space to place? Because as I'll mention a little bit later, all of us have a geography, no matter where we come from. Um, some of us, if for our students, it could be something as small as the students who take the bus to school versus students who take the car to school. They live two completely different worlds before they get to that particular school. And when they go home, they live particularly different lives as well. And that's just one example for physical education. Um, one thing that we do need to work on in terms of thinking about third space, if we're going to apply this particular concept to our practices, is thinking about a scale of analysis. There's not, in geography, they, they're having this issue as well. It's like, what does place mean in relation to physical education and schooling? And what does place mean to this, this third area here when we talk about youth finding community through online endeavors? As I've mentioned to people several times, COVID-19 will be impacting students as they interact, they come back into schools because we have a lot of students now who actually find their communities through online media or through video gaming and not necessarily through um, physical education classes and primarily because we don't, don't provide that time for them to build a community. And this is always one of the discussions that we have when people ask, well, what model do you like, Dr. Culp? And I say, I think they all work if they're given time to work and if you have teachers and a support system in place. So some of the investigations here, you can sort of look at on the side in terms of um, how I conceptualize how we might wanna look at these issues related to sport pedagogy and physical activity. And I think some of the biggest ones that we don't pay attention to enough is obviously proxemics, okay? Which is there's forms of human territory. We can look at that at some point. And then the other piece is intersectionality, intersectionality okay? The rest of it, as we sort of move on, and I'm gonna provide slides for everyone that can kind of go through those. When I was asked to think about a few weeks ago, what is a hidden message for black youth? And one of the things that I asked um, one of the classes that I visit is to think about how we teach physical education in class. So January the 6th, um, many of you are aware of the fact that there was an insurrection in the United States of America, where we had groups of people who were not satisfied with the election results and felt like they were um, not heard that they decided that they wanted to um, essentially rush the Capitol. And one of the things that I thought about in that particular situation was looking at the majority of the people who went and did the insurrection versus people who were tasked to stop the insurrection or clean up the insurrection. And the people who were tasked to stop it and clean it up were more of people of color and black people and people who were um, empowered to be insurrections in the Capitol were white people. And one of the things I thought about is, and I, I had, I borrowed this from the late Dr. Joy Butler, and she's wrote, written a book on playing fair, was thinking about critically, how do we critically discuss these things in a potential physical education standpoint? And we came up with capture the flag. And we thought about like what capture the flag means in terms of what that role reversal could mean. And in a larger scale, when we do these activities and we think about winners and losers, 
what do we communicate to people through the choice of activities that we do? Now, that's not to say that Capture the Flag is inherently a racist game, but it is to say, if it's not set up in a way that we can discuss the aspects of spatiality, you could absolutely have a situation where there are certain people who feel like they can't ever move anywhere in space effectively. Now, that's one example. Some other ones to sort of think about when we, as terms of white spaces, and again, I'm not gonna, going to read all these things here on this particular slide, but we think about white spaces versus black spaces, and white spaces are typically environments in which blacks are typically absent, not expected, or marginalized. So if you see a black person in a white space, they look like they are, they are a, 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 a abnormal, excuse me. Um, so that's part of the, the white gaze piece that we need to talk about more, I think, in physical education, because it does have ramifications for people's survivals. And as I uh, mentioned here, um, for those of y'all here listening on the podcast, this is a, a slide of a few different things that are not related just to the United States. So it's a slide of a badge from uh, White Australia Policy, um, which a lot of people in the United States are not aware. They, they think of um, policies of discrimination and they think that it's only Jim Crow in the United States and that's not necessarily the case. Um, obviously apartheid, I know one of the pre-discussions, I think we had someone who was born in 1982, and I think we had, uh, usually a lot of my students are born in the 1990s, and I try to remind people that apartheid effectively, in terms of a policy, written policy, ended in 1991. Um, and I mean, you think about that, that's in all our lifetimes, right? I mean, Quebec, place that I visited on my Fulbright. You know, they went through a process where they started renaming areas that were named after the N-word because there are a lot of spots that are named after racist slurs around the world. And these ideas that um, Black groups, Asian groups, minority ethnic people in COVID-19 and just overall as a group, they are not as physically active because they don't have access to space and how we look at inequality and who is supposed to belong in certain areas. So to end, a, a couple more things and just one overall question is if you're thinking about it from the perspective of a marginalized population, why wouldn't you seek to create a reality that the current one fails to include you in? And this is something I usually ask people when we're talking about black youth because generally, historically in physical education, when we talk about black youth, we generally talk about having to save black youth and when we think about black girls, we talk about them sitting out on the sidelines and how to get them engaged and how we need to make sure hair is, is, a, is created a certain way so that they can participate. We also think about um, boys who are overly aggressive and athletic when we think about black youth in physical education. And also we think about them in terms of, hey, we need to save groups and really, the way we should be thinking about it is if you feel like you don't belong in a certain situation, why wouldn't you try to create an alternate reality that makes you feel as if you have something to offer to society? So um, as I mentioned here, one particular thing that I think we can look at, and again, this is not the totality of it, but this idea of eliminating this death narrative. Um, because there's a lot of deaf narrative that typically goes along with Black people in society. Um, the idea of Afrofuturism. So Afrofuturism, to make a long story short, essentially involves aspects of feminism, um, disruption, alienation, water, and reclamation. And it's not saying that, you know, from those particular standpoints, what we're looking at is how do each of those things impact the quality of Black life and the perception of what Black youth will think of themselves as they go through society. So concepts such as Black excellence and promoting that in classes. Um, as I mentioned earlier, students in terms of thinking about how they wear geographies. I mean, for a lot of Black students, they end up being three different people or more during the course of the day between the person in their family, between the person in their schools, and then the persons in any type of um, social situation trying to navigate that. 
um, obviously ended identifying community leaders. Um, I think another piece that has not been neglected is intentional discussions of Africa. I think that is a global issue. Um, we do not talk about Africa usually in a positive light. We usually talk about Africa in terms of a resource, unfortunately. Um, identity development, um, the body as an alien body, and, and, and it's meant to sort of talk about this idea that Black people, unfortunately, in many communities are seen as an outside alien, and they're trying to get away from that. As we mentioned before, thinking about the body and ideas related to distortion and why do we feel like we have to distort Black bodies. Um, empowerment of women and girls, in particular, in thinking about who makes the decisions in the households. And obviously, um, Black empowerment and um, what some people are saying when you look at Afrofuturism, they look at it in terms of a Western world concept. So people have even separated into the difference between Western world perceptions of Black versus perceptions of Black people in other parts of the world, particularly in Africa. So that's all I had. Um, thank you for the opportunity to present this. And I think right now we're gonna go to some questions and answers. We are, and Brian, um, an absolutely astonishing presentation. Um, it's just the, um, the depth of thought that, that you forced me, you've stuck me to the, to the spot with some of the things you're saying. Okay, and, and this is why I opened um, the session by saying this is such an important um, conversation for our profession and also for this association. So a huge well done on opening our eyes to these issues. Um, and I'd like to pass it across to our colleagues on the call now and to open it up for discussion and questions. So, um, right, so it's a, I think it's kind of a momentous time for us at this, at this point. So let's take it. So who would like to open up with a question? And I have a number of things that I'd like to ask, but I don't want to hog the time. Um, I would like to pass across to, to, to our colleagues. So does anyone want to open up with a question, please, for Brian? Mark? Yes. Okay. Thank you, Brian. Uh, well, uh, it's always difficult to, to ask the first question, but after that, I believe that people will be there. Uh, and I, I'm sure that everyone ha has a, a lot of question or reaction. I would like to ask you if you compare the situation uh, of this black humanity in USA and in other uh, regions or countries around the world. Uh, because uh, I know that there are some behaviors that we can find everywhere, but maybe the situation is uh, more criti critical in the US than maybe in other places on the world. Then I would like to have your uh, opinion about this. I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. I think one thing um, I'm, I read, made a reference to Dr. Langston Clark, who many of you know. Uh, critical race theory, for instance, has not, has been around for decades, but I think he did a very good job of talking about critical race theory in terms of the context of specifically the United States. The United States context, and again, I'm speaking specifically for the United States, so everybody else can sort of help me out about their perceptions here, looks at Black people as a source of property. And it is, it, it is from the vestiges of the transatlantic slave trade. So black people are property, black people are considered, um, we've had legislation here that's considered black people have three fifths of people, so not even a full person. Our voting laws have been situated on that. The way that land has been looked at has been situated on that. The way that we look at physicality and athleticism has been situated in those different types of things. So particular to the United States, um, the conversation I generally have with people is that you have to look at United, physical education in the United States in a little bit different lens because we are so intertwined with sport and physical education in this country. So the tendency for a lot of people who join physical education in the United States is that they look at their um, students and classes as potential athletes, as there's going to be some type of production that comes out of that particular student. 
right? They're not necessarily, and again, this is, this is just my opinion on this. They're not necessarily looking at, okay, what's always the appropriate piece for us to get students more to grow. Now, I don't know how that looks like in other countries. Um, I, I, as I said before, you know, I, I don't think that this is just the United States phenomenon, but there are certain sort of things that how we intertwine sport and physical education so closely here in the United States, it tends to lend itself to more dehumanization of black students. Thanks, Brian. And any other colleague want to pose a question? That was a very good question, by the way. Elka. Thank you very much, Brian, for your interesting insight to your research work. Uh, linking to the question of Mark, I see some uh, parallels uh, to the Muslim community in Germany. And uh, my thoughts were, or probably also have an answer for the black communities in the US, the role of media. So what do, is there any impact of how black communities, or in Germany, I would say, the Muslim community is represented in media because um, looking at, for example, the image that the media represent of Muslim <coughs> girls and their participation in physical activity or physical education is quite uh, negative. And if we look at official numbers, we can see there aren't so many Muslim girls that ask not to participate in PE, but the media represent them as inactive and not willing to participate in PE? Uh -huh. I, I would say to that in the United States is historically, um, we have the same issue in terms of the, how the media portrayal. You just don't see it with girls, you see it more with men. Um, in the presentation, I showed you Muhammad Ali. That is the number one, if you go back and look at the history of kind of how all of that went down, Muhammad Ali was fine until he, he decided he wanted to become Muslim. And then everyone had an issue with him until 1996 when he was came back and lit the torch. So when we look at celebrations, for instance, when you even look at sport, it's very common to see someone celebrate and the, their Christian religion, if they celebrate that, or if they talk about their Christian God, everybody's fine with it. If someone does anything related to um, a Muslim appreciation or Muslim celebration, it's tend to be looked at, shunned at from the media. I um, mean, and even as you sort of alluded to in terms of dress, I mean, we have teachers here who will question dress codes, question hair, and they're all based um, primarily on religion. Thanks, Elka. Thank you. Um, I'm just just making sure that everybody gets a chance to, to say what they want to say. Any other any other comments or even reactions? Risto. Thanks, Brian. Um, I had a question about taking this to the to the PEAT level. What's your kind of opinion on would you advocate for PEAT programs having a specific race, social justice, gender kind of class looking at it from a sport? or physical education uh, point of view, or would you advocate for, which I think would be harder to do, to get everybody on board and talk about it in every class, which I think would be ideal. Um, I know I know there's a recent research study on this that looked across uh, different um, US institutions and different uh, international institutions, but where do you stand on that? And is that something that uh, you have at your university? Great question. So I'm biased and I will always tell you that it needs to happen in every class. I've been saying that for 15, 16 years. I think when we've seen that approach, you tend to have programs that are not just more progressive, but the students who come out of that programs, they know how to talk and work with a lot of different students and meet the needs of a lot of um, different communities. So I would say, yeah, I, I think it needs to be overall within every class. It has to be supported obviously by administration. And I think even more importantly, it needs to be assessed because most of the time when we assess, we assess at the end of a program or in the end of student teaching. And a lot of our student teachers, are they're tired. They don't really want to talk about it, but they, we have to assess them five years down the road 
10 years down the road in some cases, if some of us are gonna stay along around that long to sort of see what type of impact are happening in those particular types of schools or places that they work with, or even in terms of their interpretation of what social justice is. I, I mean, I, I'm obviously here in the Southern United States. I get a mixed bag of students. I get a lot of students who do not understand social justice principles, quite frankly, because they've never been introduced to them. And that's the black and the white students, right? So, and it's the thing, particularly with PEEP majors, we are seduced into this idea that if we play sports together, if we work together, then everything's gonna be okay. And it completely changes when they're teaching other groups of students. So um, to your point, yeah, I, I would, I think it needs to be consistent all the way around, but you asked another good question, which is what else that we can do for Pete? And I, I was gonna talk a little bit about this at Shape, so I don't wanna give too much away, but I think we need to really think about physical education classes in terms of cities. Like this, this is what I talk about spatiality. So who has the right to the city is a question that's been asked in geography um, for a lot of times. And I don't think we think about it in terms of how do we set up physical education classes so that we're preparing students to live in the world. We tend to prepare them a lot for motor skills and we tend to really focus on that a lot, not necessarily how do we survive in communities and how do we get along with each other and even things at the elementary level, which I've talked about before, the whole concept of general versus personal space, it's just completely glossed over, but it's such a big concept. It is a concept that when you see a lot of things that are happening in society with how space is negotiated, it comes back to this idea of general space versus personal space. And we touch that in elementary school and we never go back to that again at any other point in education. It's a phrase and that I come across, Brian, as well, which is space is the body language of a community. And it says a lot. It's kind of this um, uh, quite overt thing, but it's often a quite a tacit thing. Sometimes it depends on how, how we see it. Jamie, I'm going to hop across to you next. Um, thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Brian, um, for the great um, discussion this morning. So. Um, I guess one of my questions, and it was on the slide that you um, referenced in the work that you and Dr. Blackshear have done together around Black representation in the curriculum and in Greeley, and you know a little bit about the context in which um, I'm teaching in Colorado, mm -hmm. over 50% of our K through 12 schools students are actually from the Latinx population. And so I'm just curious as far as thinking about when we think about Pete and just preparing future teachers, um, that the notion of black representation in the curriculum, does that transfer, translate across other minority groups as well? Um, or should we be focusing specifically on black representation and representation of all of the other um, potential minority groups within um, communities? And I would actually argue that as in K through 12 schools here, um, obviously, if Latinx population is more than 50%. They are not the minority group. And so um, just you're curious to hear your thoughts around that. Yeah, that's a great question. And um, Dr. Blackshear can certainly, like I said, I think she's here. She can certainly add um, her opinion on this as well. I think what we have to understand, particularly to the United States, is that civil rights have historically come through Black groups. So if it, because it, it, we for so long has been the largest minority population in the United States. And when we think about historic history of laws, they have come through black groups. So in perceiving that article, it's first of all was obviously we have black people who are getting um, killed and um, disadvantaged at high levels and the other part of that is, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, I think it means that there's openings for other people to talk about other groups in relation to physical education as well. So um, that was pretty much in, in terms of my interpretation, the, the situation of why we were thinking about that article in terms of from a civil rights perspective. And we're looking at like how legislation has sort of gone from Black people and everybody else is sort of, um, for lack of a better word, has emulated that 
and have also moved through that in order to get their freedoms as well. Um, I will also say this, and just to kind of add to your point, particularly to where you are in Colorado, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago from a recruitment and retention standpoint, we're horrible with that. We, we, don't, we do not do a good job of recruitment and retention of all quote unquote underrepresented minority populations in the United States related to PDP. So I do think that that's an area that we need to improve upon. And I think that that will help with some of the outcomes for standards because I think what it's very difficult, and this has been the space that I've been in for a few years, Sometimes it's very difficult for me as a black man to talk about other groups because I don't feel like I'm doing it justice. Like, right? So I work really hard to try to get speakers in. And I think it can be a lot of pressure for any one person to talk about another group because you're never going to get everything correct. Brian, I think this is a nice segue to just ask you some, uh, I suppose your insights and maybe Tara and others on the call in relation to the strategic direction of our organization, of ISEP. We're, we're in the midst of um, developing our strategy and we're putting a lot of work into that. And you would be aware from our work in New York that we mm -hmm. did call out different pillars, one of which was the equity in, in the diversity and inclusion pillar. But myself and Mark and colleagues from the board, Aria and others that are on this call we're, we're not just interested in that being words. We wanted to really, um, you know, to activate this throughout the organization and to have the pipeline of diversity rolling through the whole organization that on the board, you will see that representation um, that our membership really, you can actually, it's mirrored all the way through and it's not now at the moment. Mm -hmm. So I'd love your advice on that. And um, we're at a particular moment and I'd like to hear from you on, on that on that point, please. It would really be helpful. Thank you. Well, great. I'm going to give a couple of comments. And then, as I said, I mean, open it up for everybody else if, if they have some, some diverse opinions, because sure. I know some people here on this call are part of some groups that are currently working in this right now. So um, uh, Dr. LaRusso is actually on this particular call right now. And I don't want to you know, call her out, but we had a discussion about this a few months ago in terms of what about a self-study of an organization as a first start. And I don't know if ISEP has done that, but I think that's a very important thing in terms of, first of all, establishing where you are positionally, your history and where you wanna go. And then quite frankly, you're gonna to have to interview people and, uh, and who have participated in these, these conferences before. I don't think it's any surprise. And um, Tara and I talked about this actually a couple of days ago that when you see another person of color at ISEP, it's, it's a rare occasion. I mean, it's kind of one of those things where you look into each other's eyes, it's like, okay, well, where are you from? And this is, it doesn't matter what part of the world you're from. And that's not to say that people are intentionally trying to exclude folks, but I think we need to interview people who come to this conference who are from underrepresented populations and figure out, first of all, why are they coming to the conference? Um, what are the barriers that are keeping them from coming to the conference? Because there are a lot of things that are barriers, such as, first of all, money, okay? Um, that's, a, that's a real big one. Some of it is career goals. Some of it is the university not, not for instance, um, rewarding that type of engagement as they probably should. Some of it is just quite frankly, fear. I mean, if, you know, the first time I went to a few ICEPs and presented, I'm sitting there like, I don't, I have no idea what these people, what, what people perceive me as, but you get comfortable with that over a period of time. So I would say that a self-study is a first step. And then I think from there, you need actionable, measurable items. Um, I think speakers are often a good thing as well. And I think I'm mentioning you and then I'll let somebody else kind of chime in here. You know, we do a horrible job in physical education of exchanges and, and in terms of not just knowledge exchanges, but you know, let's say, for instance, if I wanted to jump on a plane and go visit someone in Scotland for a few weeks and discourse and dialogue about curriculum, get ideas and then bring them back to the United States. Well, I just think that there are more opportunities that we can intentionally create for that to happen, because I think you would get a more diverse group coming to participate in those types of things and they would give different perspectives. So. Yeah, good answer. And we may be coming back to you on that. 
Um, Tara, do you want to join in? Is there anything else you'd like to say, maybe, uh, to add to what Brian has said? I actually agree with the um, taking an inventory on, you know, your black and other um, minoritized groups on why they why they attend the conference. I wasn't even familiar um, after living overseas for seven years. It wasn't until Dylan Landy actually approached me and said, do you wanna um, participate in this consortium at ICEP? And so I think the lack of awareness, I mean, we see, we see it on the national level here at Shape America. And for me, and I don't know enough about ICEP and its leadership, but the, the barriers that exist here are there are people who are, who are on the board or in the organization that still want to maintain um, the status quo. And so I think one of the steps is rooting those people out. Um, and people are aware that these people exist. And I think to have the courage to let people know that if they are not pro-inclusion at a fundamental level, that this may not be the organization for you. And I think that is, those are defining moments for organizations where they have to have the courage to put, um, you know, if you have a white supremacist in your group and you know that to be true, what are you doing about that? Because those, those folks are cancer and they just start to erode um, many of the efforts um, that, you're, that you're putting forward. So I think, you know, I can't speak to ICEP, but I know for certain that's going on here in the United States that people are very reluctant and they wanna hold on to um, the concept of white supremacy where it starts to infiltrate every aspect of the organization. And so you'll never, you know, Shape America hasn't changed, right? And so I think having the courage to make tough decisions with people who are not aligned with the mission of ISEP. Thanks, Tara. And you're absolutely right, because otherwise the work we're doing now is really important and we're trying to be, I suppose, uh, to hear the voices of membership and make sure it's driven from that aspect, everything we're doing, but it's not just the words on the page, it's going to be how we live them. Um, and we want to get it right. So we're at a moment of a lot of reflection um, before everything is really committed to paper and the, the, the membership agree on our pathway forward. And then it's about actioning it. And what does this actually look like? And how can we support that diversity to happen throughout the organization tangibly, not just saying we're doing it, but actually doing it. And even if we start doing it in small ways, that's fine. That also grows and flourishes. You know, so, so that's that's what we're trying to do, Mark, Aria, other members of the board. And um, so that's what we're interested in it. And this is why today was very important. This was, but it's only one day. Really important to kick this off properly, hear from the folks that are actually researching in this area, live it, know it, understand it. Um, yeah, really, really important. And um, what I'm going to do now, and I know this is recorded, which is fantastic. And thanks to you, Risto, as well, for helping us on that front. And thanks to you, Cassandra, the, the person behind, behind everything, trying to keep everything moving smoothly. If it's okay with you, Brian, I'm going to invite Mark now to close this session, but I see this is the beginning, the beginning of the conversation and action, not just chatting, um, and just pass across to our president now. Thank you very much. Thanks again. Thank Brian. you very much. Thank you, Fiona. Uh, well, uh, it seems that uh, such diversity is important not only for black humanity, but also for people coming from all part of the world, then it's important for ISEP to have people and people working in sport pedagogy research and who are teaching to physical educators. Then it's important to have people coming from all culture. And because as I said at the beginning, uh, ISEP is a very big family. We have the same uh, objectives everywhere, whatever the, the color, whatever the culture, what, whatever the religion, then we would like to have a, a world with people who are well physically educated 
and who are able to to live in this uh, world together. And I believe that the physical education teacher, because it's the, the central uh, educator force, the physical education teacher is the 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 main actor to um, work for integration, for work together, and to prepare the people to live together. Because we are using the body, we are using things that the people are able to do in their uh, community, and it's important. Uh, it's a, an, an important role. Then uh, we will continue to work on this. They are uh, Cassandra explained that we are working already all on concrete projects, and we will continue in this direction. Then uh, thank you again for your contribution to that reflection, Brian, and uh, all other colleagues here. Uh, I am so sorry because uh, uh, Wei Feng Min arrived a little bit uh, late uh, because we are finishing the 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 the, the workshop now. It was uh, 1 p.m. CET. Then I believe you you, you made a, a mistake in the time conversion. But I, I'm sure that you'll be there uh, on time for the next uh, ISAP Connect. It will be on March uh, 26, logically, and you'll receive information to be part of this uh, next activity. So if you, you like, we, we could end this. Thank you again. Bravo, Brian. And uh, speaking about this important aspect, and thanks to all other colleagues to be there. And uh, happy to see you again next time. Stay safe and thanks again. Thank you, everybody.